everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm Spencer Martin from the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. I'm here with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. We're going to talk about Pair Roubaix, which wrapped up on Sunday, and then the coming Arden's classics and why I and why they depress me and why I miss the cobbles and I want them to come back. But Andrew, before we get into it, do you want to say a quick word about your podcast? Yeah, Choose the Hard Way is a podcast about how hard things build stronger humans. If you're listening to this, you're probably someone who has lived this in real life. And I think you would enjoy hearing from my guests. Recently had Kristen Faulkner on in a dual interview with Spencer. Part two is over here on Beyond the Peloton. And come join us. Choose the Hard Way is everywhere you listen to podcasts at choosethehardway.com. And you can find us on social at Hardway Pod, have a big double episode with Cameron Mason dropping tomorrow. Part one behind the music on Choose the Hardway. Part two with Spencer over here on Beyond the Peloton. Come check us out. Yeah, I'm pumped. Pumped for the Mason one that comes out tomorrow. Big day, and uh, and we, we also talked to Marco Panati on Beyond the Peloton on Friday. So if you're interested in performance and how that happens, he's the sport engineering director at <clears throat> Team Jayco. Make sure you check that out. Pretty, pretty interesting insights there. But Andrew, I was just telling you in the pre-record, you notice so much from these races, so many things that so many people miss. Um, oh, and I should say, Matthew Vanderpool, one pair of Roubaix, solo, rode away from Wout Van Aert, who got a flat tire on the Carrefour de Arbre, however we're saying that, on a cobbled section, late in the race. Um, there was a strong elite group, went clear about 100K from the finish. Pretty much the race was over then. Um, we're, we're all very sad. We didn't get to see the sprint in the velodrome, but we should also remember that never happens. There's always a mechanical. You always have one rider winning or some outsider sprinting against the favorite. So it's just kind of how things work when you race over, uh, Roman roads that are like 2,500 years old, um, not the best condition, but Andrew, what, what did you notice? What stuck out with, to you during this race? Well, first Spencer, I want to give you a shout out for your subscriber only Rupe email. You had one of my favorite lines I have read in a while. I don't know if you lifted this from somewhere else, but you said the strategy of the winner is always the right strategy. <laughs> I think <laughs> Johan Bernil said that and I just stole it from him. I think he I, <laughs> I think he incepted me with that. It's a strong line. I really enjoyed reading that. I wrote it down. I thought that was great. Some of the things that really jumped out at me, I mean Post-race, that high-five handshake between Wout and Matthew, whoo, ice cold. Did you catch L that? Little frosty. I mean, Wout has got to be so sick of this guy at this point. I mean, he's just beating him in every one of his major um, one-day objectives. And I guess it'd be one thing if you – you know, remember Boonen just got straight up beat by Matt Heyman. I think that was 2016. Yeah. I'm just like, there's just nothing – there was nothing to be done there. Like – Heyman was just the stronger rider on the day. Boonin was pretty excited for him. I thought it was like really the moment where Boonin kind of won me over. This has got to be so frustrating. Just, I guess he got dropped fair and square at Flanders, but man, Wout looks pretty strong on Sunday and to lose the race with a flat tire, you'd be, I, I think he's pretty irked and just probably pretty sick of Vanderpool at this point. I mean, I'm just watching this on a streaming feed. Does it seem that Matthew is a, a bit colder to Wout than the other way around? You know, I, yes, I, I've gotten that through the streaming TV as well. What's funny is I've heard in real life on the ground, 
Matthew is like the affable one, approachable. Wout is a little chilly and distant. I mean, that's, I don't know what, I don't want to like character shame anyone. That's just what I've heard. Um, and in that it's kind of the inverse of what you would imagine just from TV. All right. Well, beyond the handshake at the end there, and there's a line in one of my favorite Bad Religion songs. I don't remember, Spencer, can we curse on this podcast or not? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So there's a line in a uh, Bad Religion song that says, a handshake is nothing but a subtle fuck you. That's kind of what it felt like between Wowden and Matthew there at the end of the race. The other thing that really jumped out at me as it did, I'm sure, to many of you all who were watching this race, Yumbo is typically super dialed in when it comes to strategic execution on the logistics side of the house. And numerous times towards the end end of this race, uh, both at 39K to go, 37K to go, and a few more times, Wout appeared to get the wrong bottle at bottle hand hand ups on the side of the road. And he, he got the bottle, he looked at it, and he chucked it two times in a row. I'm not saying that that made the difference in this race. As we all know, Matthew Vanderpool won. I know this because Canyon Bicycles sent me an email, and that was the title of the email. I wouldn't have known otherwise, but now I know. But going back to the topic of feeding, so it looked like Wout got the wrong bottles a couple of times. And the other thing that I noticed prior to that, and I was watching very closely, as I'm sure you were, Spencer, and everyone listening to this, was Matthew was just shoving food in his face at a much higher rate than anyone else in the entire race, from what I could tell. That guy was eating constantly. He always had a gel out. He was just banging down the carbs. I'm sure everyone else was trying to do the same thing, but Matthew was doing it so frequently and consistently. It really jumped out at me. And again, Wout eventually gets the flat tire. But feeding yourself is not just for physical performance. Your brain runs on glycogen primarily. I know there are going to be some people out there who say, hey, wait, what about ketones? Well, you should go listen to our conversation with Marco Panati if you want to hear a little bit more about ketones. But the rider who was able to maximally fuel themselves during the race, and in this instance, it looked like it was Matthew, it's not just about physical performance, it's about cognitive performance, it's about staying sharp, it's about keeping the CNS as sharp as possible, and to have like the best decision-making, line selection, everything. Now, I'm not saying that Wout could have avoided that flat, but it did look like Matthew was eating more and more frequently than Wout. What about you, Spencer? What jumped out of you in the race? Well, Roubaix is a game of eating. I mean, it, the, the hard thing about Roubaix is eating enough because it's so chaotic. I mean, you can't really eat on the cobblestones. And then when you're not on the cobblestones, the pace is really hard. And it, that's when attacks go. You, you don't have your car. You don't have teammates usually. So really, it's just eat as much as you possibly can. Vanderpool crushed that. It's funny you mentioned the decision-making because I thought his decision-making was awful. <laughs> like, yeah. all day. But he did make, we should say... Yumbo got to the front with 101 kilometers to go. I think a lot of riders thought it was just, oh, they're trying to stay safe on this cobblestone section. Didn't fool Vanderpool. Like he was right on the wheel. The rider on the front, I, I do not know his name. I could not see the name on his helmet. They had these, Yumbo had these weird helmets, but he was riding so hard. I mean, you could see his face on the broadcast. Like this guy is going to blow up. His day is done after this two minute pull. Um, and they just blew the race up. Vanderpool snuffed it out. He's right on the wheel. So kudos to him for that. After that, could not 
<laughs> could not really ride a worse race. He was, he had Jasper Philipson, who's the fastest sprinter in the race, and then Vanderpool's attacking constantly. He gets away with Van Art, and he was working with Wout Van Art. He was saved by this flat tire, by the way, because he was going to work with Van Art to the finish line. And if he gets beaten by Van Art in the velodrome, and then Philipson gets third and is the fastest sprinter in the race, wouldn't the question be? Now, why exactly did you pull your biggest rival away from the one rider in the race who could beat him in a sprint? I thought he, I thought the decision making was all over the place, and the fact that Vanderpool fl- or Van Art flatted maybe saved him a little bit of embarrassment there. Yeah, I completely agree with you, and I'm sure we're going to get into this. But until Laporte flatted out of the break, Yumbo had made all the right moves. Alpeson looked like they had not made the right moves. And, you know, fair is foul, foul is fair. The wheel of fortune is always turning. And as you noted, the strategy of the winner is always the right strategy. And someone in the, the comments did say, this is pretty, it's depressing, but it's good. It's like, no one remembers this bad luck. You know, think about Roubaix in the mid 2000s. You don't look at those results and say, oh, Tom Boonen won four. I believe he won four. Uh, maybe, one, I don't know, correct me in the comments, but... You, you never think like, oh, Cancellara had a f- the flu that year or Cancellara flatted at this point in the race. You just remember the winner. So, you know, whether this is fair or not, Vander- Vanderpool is crushing Van Art in the monument game currently. And Van Art, bad luck or not, has to turn around. Is it bad luck, though? That would be my next question. Like Laporte flatting was a massive blow. Van Art flatting was a massive blow. Laporte flatted again. I think Na- Nathan Van Hoydunk flatted out of the chase group as well. Like, were they riding, what were they riding? Like cotton, soft time trial tires? Like what's going on here? And this is a year after, I think Van Art flatted last year, which maybe cost him the win. And then Laporte's wheel tacoed last year at Roubaix. So like, is Yumbo, like, I don't know. are Are we sure they're good with their equipment? What's going on here? Why can they not consistently get a tire? Like maybe just ride some continental gator skins? (laughs) <laughs> what what did you take from this? Like, are they just over complimenting this, over complicating this tire situation at Roubaix? Uh, I just want to give the Yumbo Visma team a heads up. They do, to their credit, they have a page on their website on the World Wide Web that's all about their equipment. And I'm finding information about their 2021 tire selection. However, I cannot see their 2023 tire selection. I don't want to misspeak. I believe that both Yumbo Visma and Alpecin Phoenix, or whatever they're called, Dequinic, Alpecin Phoenix, they're both on Vittorio tires. So I believe that both of these teams are on the same equipment within the scope of being on the same brand. I don't think that tire liners or other choices were likely to make a big difference here. So I wonder, was there a big pressure differential? And Another area I wanted to touch on as it relates to tires specifically, if you go back and rewatch, I mean, geez, like the final 100K, and in particular, once Matthew was off the front on his own, he was not riding in a uh, equipment protective manner. And maybe he just has finer touch than any other rider. He likely does. Wout got his flat seemed to get his flat when he was riding in a straight line, more or less on the crown, on the cobbles. It was unusual. I don't know if we have more information, if uh, there's a smoking gun or tech or whatever the case may be. I don't know if he had something actually puncture his tire or what went down, but Matthew was 
all over the road. I mean, he was using the edge of the cobbles as if it were a berm in a lot of instances. He didn't ride in a way that suggested he was attempting to preserve his tires. He was burning rubber. Well, we should say they have the same same tire sponsor, Victoria. But we don't know as, what they're actually yeah, running. Yeah, as we know yeah. at Roubaix, there's a long tradition of teams. Like sometimes you could even just see like they'll take a sharpie and mark yeah. out the name and then write their sponsor's name on it. Yeah. Also, I guess wheel choice can like I think Vanderpool is on Shimano wheels and then Yumbo's on some budget ass. Like I don't even know the name of this company. It's you know the, the it's the house brand of the parent company. Uh, the holding company that owns Santa Cruz, Cervelo. I don't remember the other brands, oh, but like I believe Pond that's their... Holdings or whatever? Yeah, it's the Pond Holdings house brand. So it would be the equivalent of... I'm trying to think. I think Scott owns Synchros, for example. Yeah, so if yeah. you had a... It's one of those deals. Yeah, so maybe the internal width is wider on the Shimano's and is giving... Because the control here is Philipson. Like maybe Vanderpool has a good touch, but... Philipson's right. a bunch spinner didn't flat, I believe, at any point in the race. Um, I mean, maybe he's a fantastic bike handler too. You'd imagine he's not as good as Wout Van Aert, though. So yeah, I don't know. Yumbo maybe should go back to the drawing board on on what's going on here. And this is a particularly bad look because they had like five days of media PR about this super duper futuristic system where they could adjust the PSI and the tires between the cobbles and the road. Great idea, but if your PSI is at zero, like that's not super useful. Yeah, I also have to wonder if messing about with the self-inflating tire thing was just a distraction when they should have been spending more time, yeah, you know, getting the sharpie out. Yeah, it's a good, it's <laughs> but, a good point, right? It's yeah. like, why are you? I mean, because we know Watt was actually on that prototype, or I guess it's an actual functioning product, but they were on those wheels during the recon and training, and it's he probably should have been on what he was going to actually ride in the race. I mean, I think that's pretty axiomatic. And you just think about mental energy and human yeah. resources of the team, like maybe just go into solve the question, how do we not have flat tires? Not how do we manage our tire pressure between cobblestone and road? I mean, obviously if Walt doesn't flat and they win the race, we're like, oh my, oh, they're geniuses. So yeah, we don't care. But, you know, I would guess that, Someone in the in my comment section said it was a, they were running tubulars, which I'd be a little surprised by. Um, but the Vanar flat did kind of it reminded me. Do you, you ever these snake bite flats on the tubular yeah. tires? Yeah. So that's kind of yeah. what it looked like. Yeah, that's that's what I thought might be the case as well. Because again, because of where he was on the crown of the road, it seems unlikely that there was debris there that would have caused an actual puncture and hitting a hard square edge. Yeah, a snake bite seemed like. The most likely occurrence. Another thing I wanted to ask you about this, Spencer, given up until now, Yumbo Visma seem they've seemed pretty invincible in most races that they've entered. Their level of organization has been unsurpassed thus far this year, both amongst their riders as well as amongst their support staff. Just this just seemed messy. It seemed junky. And there is, is there a bit of drama going on behind the scenes with Yumbo potentially pulling out as a sponsor? And do you think that's creating some distraction within the team because they're having to scramble as they figure out what their financial future looks like? I don't know anything. I mean, I guess we we technically both know one of their staffers, Patrick Bro, but 
I imagine it is a little bit of a distraction, right? At least subconsciously, if you're a staff member, if you're a writer, I mean, imagine if you're, I don't know, Christoph Laporte and you just got to this team, you're making a ton of money, everything's great. And then you're thinking, God, we lose our sponsor next year or at the end of next year. And then I've got to find a new team. I, I, I would find it not the most tranquilo situation. What about yourself? Yeah, I think anything that distracts the team from its primary objective, which is to go out and win bike races, has to be highly distracting. I also think this is just symptomatic of a disease in the sport at large that we've talked about many times before and that I know you cover in your other newsletter, Spencer, but just like the business of professional cycling is not a fantastic one. It's a bit of a mess. And to see a team with these results at this level struggling right now to find their next sponsor, and maybe they won't struggle. It's just the fact that they have to think about this in the midst of the period of time when competition is reaching its apex in the spring has to be a distraction, I would think. Yeah, the, the newsletter is the Outerline Airmail. I'll put a link in the notes because we do talk about this Yumba situation in their most recent edition. Kind of my overarching theory is it's it's like HTC had the same problem. You become a victim of your own internationalization. Think of the big stars right. on, on Yumbo. It's like Primus Roglic, Jonas Vindegaard, like, what does Yumbo care about getting exposure in Slovenia and Denmark? They don't have any stores there. Like, if right. they had a Dutch GC rider, if, they had a, if Jonas Vinegard was Dutch, I don't think this would be happening. I also know Yumbo, the company, has had some problems, like maybe like scandals in the C-suite, and they don't have a CEO currently, or they just fired their CEO. So things might not be super stable there. But you're right. It never really seems to be a problem for F1 teams to bring in um, sponsors. No, it doesn't. And speaking of contenders getting taked out, taken out at inopportune moments, let's talk about the uh, Degenkolb situation. Let's talk about it. Let's talk uh, about it, Spencer. Up top, I'm saying racing incident. Don't be on the edge of the cobblestones. Uh, we, you saw what happened to Zindic Stevar, John. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> it is a dangerous place to ride. I'm sure it seems appealing when you're fucked. Yeah, it's hilarious to me it's not funny it's not i wish that he had stayed in the race i also wish that wout had not had a flat i don't wish that i was a little bit taller i'm six two and i think if i were any taller that's too high it, it would be a real drag i'm kind of at the maximum it's kind of awkward already getting in an airplane seat uh so i can't say that i wish i was a little bit taller but as it relates to this i thought it was unfortunate i i do think it was uh, it was definitely not awesome, and it did make me reflect back on what went down in Flanders last week with the rider doing the the bowling pin or whatever the bowling ball movement into the peloton and <laughs> releasing like a thermonuclear blast. This was kind of the converse of that situation. So that's what I thought about in the moment. I was like, last week the problem was someone on the edge of the road careening back into the center of the road and taking everyone out this week we have and that guy i mean geez i it was really unfortunate it also was a move that we've seen riders at every level within the peloton and every level level of the pecking order have pulled that move that guy you know unfortunately rode into a giant hole that was submerged underwater and wrecked <laughs> everyone so not a good not a good look also it's like you know we've kind of have seen everyone do this I and then know, the guy just got for him. 
yeah, he got slaughtered on social media. The public shaming that he underwent was brutal. Uh, I think was Tim Wellens one of the writers that was taken out in the crash. So yeah, yeah, he said he. I I want to try to pull up the story because he had a quote that was just super zen and had a really interesting take on it. However, when Matthew goes pinballing off the road, it's just it's kind of the converse of the situation. Degen Kolb goes down. I would have liked to have seen him in the remainder of the race, but you know, as you said, that's bike racing, right? Yeah, it's it's really sad for him because he. If you're not familiar, 2015, this guy's unbelievable. I think he wins San Remo and Roubaix, which Vanderpool did, did this year. Yeah, um, rare combo. He gets in like this really unfortunate accident in 2016. They're in Spain and their training camp, and there's a British person. If you're not familiar, British roads are the opposite of European roads. A lady, a British lady driving on the wrong side of the road, plows into his whole team and like his finger got cut off. They had to like go find oh. his finger and reattach it. Pretty traumatic on your body and your mind to go through that. Never really been the same since. He did win the Roubaix stage at a Tour de France, maybe two years after that. Um, I thought this was like the best he's looked since 2015. Really impressive ride. He was devastated emotionally. But if we just start to, he finished seventh two and a half minutes back, probably the best he could have done without the crash is fifth, if we're being honest. So yeah. materially actually didn't cost him that much. Um, but yeah, I'm sure it's a bummer. He, he probably felt like he could contest the win. But realistically, when Van Art and Vanderpool went on that section, no, no one was going to bring them back. I mean, those guys were just better than everybody else. The weird thing about the crash, I thought, is so Vanderpool's trying to squeeze by his teammate Philipson on the most difficult cobbled sector of the race where everyone knows this is where he has Vanderpool has to attack because he doesn't want to sprint against guys like John Degenkolb or Wout Van Aert. And you have to re you really want to attack from the front. So why did Alpeson have Philipson lead into that sec sector and then force Vanderpool? That was a pretty risky move. Even Assuming Degenkolb's not there, that's that's tough to go around to the edge of the cobblestones where the, the most fans are. I mean, anything could happen to you. Um, they did. They unfortunately pinched Degenkolb when they were going by. That's what happened. And he crashed. People were saying, oh, Vanderpool could have braked. Vanderpool's not breaking in that situation. Like That's when the attack is going. He's not breaking for John Degenkolb. But that was so weird to me. Why, why did they have Philipson leading? I thought that was just like sloppy race management and racecraft that could have had Vanderpool crash right there. Yeah, it seemed a bit bizarre. I don't know if the plan was to do try to pull a one-two punch and that they wanted to have the dummy attack, force Wout to go after it, and then Matthew was going to counter potentially. That's all I could think of. The traditional thing you do there is your leader's first, teammate's second, leader accelerates, teammate does not accelerate. Everyone gets stuck behind the teammate. You know, even on, on that right. sector, like even, you know, 10 meters is maybe too much to close down. Uh, Van, it was impressive when Van Art just like got a clean line after that crash and he was away. No one could get to him. And then Vanderpool just closed it down. That was that was pretty impressive. You don't see many people close down gaps like that at that point of the race. What did you make of Gano's performance? I thought it was pretty good. I thought the guy's getting a lot of hate on Twitter, like some betting Pro bettors are like, oh, he was never going to win. Like, it's just bookies taking your money. It's like, well, it's easy to say that after the race. And I thought he probably could have won. But to get sixth, I don't think before this year he'd ever been top 35 in a monument. And now he is second at San Remo, sixth at Roubaix. Pretty good result. I mean, that's promising for the future. What did you think of it? 
Yeah, Ghana looked strong until he didn't. The thing that jumped out at me was that he appeared to be running the classic Sky Enios playbook. Anytime that he got dropped, he never surged to close the gap. It was just that steady diesel reeling it back. And it was pretty effective. I mean, it got him back into the action until Matthew like really let it rip. I don't think that that's likely to work in general uh, in the classics where you typically see these explosive attacks, particularly when you have protagonists at the level of Vanderpool and Van Ert. So I, I, I think his chances of winning uh, were, were quite slim. I don't think you can do the old uh, Wiggins diesel from diesel approach to winning one of these races. On the other hand, if you can keep yourself in the mix, something happens has happened to Dagen then you never know. Right. But yeah. And if you were going to critique both him and Pedersen, I thought were really strong, but really their race was over the moment they did not, they weren't on Van Art's wheel with one one to go. Right. Because those bridges through the armored forest and then afterwards, Oh my God, I would like to see their power meter, their power profiles, because that, that probably roasted them for the rest of the race. I mean, Pedersen was good. Fourth place is good. He, he's probably, you know, competing for the win without that bridge. And then, I mean, Ghana felt like he was bridging forever. He was bridging from 101 kilometers to go to like 87 kilometers to go through some of the hardest parts of the race. Like, you're never going to be the same after that. And did you notice like all the salt on him? Like maybe the fueling strategy wasn't quite right there. He might have just been a little rattled and not drinking and eating enough. Well, speaking of Pedersen... Does he need to change teams? Um, he's free reign on track, but yeah, you're right. If he wants to win these races, this is so lame. This is, is like depressing, but if you want to win these races, you kind of have to be on the team of one of these big, big favorites because you don't stand a chance if you're on a different team than them. So if he was on Yumbo, <laughs> it's absurd to think about, but you know, maybe he wins this race. Yeah, it, it seems to me he needs to get on a different squad if he has aspirations of I mean, they have winning. like, no, I, I do. I like that team. I like some of the people that work for them. Um, they don't have a very big budget. And the support is not always there. Like, where was Quinn Simmons? Well, what's going on with him? Do you, do you know anything? Maybe schemo training? <laughs> He's getting ready for Paris 2024. Summer Olympic schemo. <laughs> <laughs> or whenever, whenever the heck that's yeah. going to be in the Olympics. Yeah, it could be the case, but you're right. Once they got into Arnberg, Ghana, Pedersen, they had to burn matches that meant they were unlikely to get back in the mix and win the race. I had a question for you, Spencer. When they did enter Arnberg, and what's uh, I was talking to my kids about this because they were asking me about the history of this sector. It was actually built by Napoleon's army. So a point of differentiation versus some of the other cobbled sectors, I think. And I don't know if you noticed this on the broadcast. I couldn't tell what their physical location was. But once again, we have fans deciding that this crucial moment of the race where the parkour is the most difficult and very challenging to navigate without any further obstructions. Like, hey, let's get the flares out. This is the perfect moment to get flares out and like let it rip. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, if you go to, like, I was just at a soccer game recently in the UK, and, like, flares are illegal. Didn't stop them, though. There's flares on the pitch. <laughs> the players have flares thrown at them. <laughs> European fans love these flares. Get them out there. Get everyone uh, inhaling smoke during some of the hardest points of uh, physical exertion. I'm wondering if Velon could get on the mix with this and actually collaborate with the UCI, and we could start having flare holders on the back of some of the riders' bikes. Oh, yeah, that would be awesome. Just uh, choking <laughs> the people behind you. Yeah, it'd be I, like uh, the video game Spy Hunter. You can decide when you want to ignite your flare and take out your adversary. I think they used to run Arnberg the other way. I think it's they run it slightly uphill now. They used to do it slightly downhill, which someone almost died. So they were like, wow, this is really dangerous. We should do this the other way. You got to feel for how rough those cobblestones were because they ate a tubeless tire. I mean, that was Derek Gee, G, the Canadian on Israel Premier Tech. Did you see this? Like, I've never Whew. seen a tubeless just get chewed up by a road like that. It, uh, it definitely made me have a further moment of doubt about running tubeless tires on the road. I mean, Arnberg is bad, but I don't know. You ride into a pothole. Do you want that happening to your wheel? Yeah. And I guess this is maybe, let's just say Yumbo was running tubular. Right. That would have contributed to Van Art being able to keep it on the rim through the cobble sector where he flatted. You know, if you're on tubeless, can you be confident? Obviously, no, after what we saw. That you can't just keep riding in the same way and keep it on the rim. That's a nice thing about tubular that it's not, that's not going to happen to you. But no, I had the same hesitation where I was like, well, I guess I'm on clinchers anyway, so it's coming off. But maybe we, I bet Colby Pierce just rides tubulars around. Someone like that probably still, still keeping it on the rim no matter what. Yeah, possibly tubulars, wooden rims likely. Yeah, I don't rims. <laughs> the Remember these ambrosio rims or whatever they used to. Oh yeah, the bay? yeah, oh, yeah. Those are nice. Yeah, yeah, I do remember those. The box section. Yeah, oh, it is. Yeah. It's wild. I know that I've been sending you links to a lot of. Uh, I think it's the organization that runs the Tour of Flanders has an inside the race documentary that they've done for more than a decade. I'm excited to see the Netflix Tour de France series, but I feel like that Flanders series is what the Netflix series wants to be. It's incredible. Before Flanders this year, I watched, I think, five years of the race. And I was watching the uh, 2017 edition that Philippe Gilbert won, correct? Yes. Yeah. And it's hilarious because he's off the front and then he calls his car up and- Wait, no, keeps... that was 2019. Okay, 2019. I've misspoken. Thank you. But he calls he calls the team car up. Tom Steele's drives up, and you know they're doing a, a fake bottle hand up or yeah, saddle yes. adjustment or something. <laughs> he's and he's he's complaining, and somehow I guess they're mic'd inside the car. They have a GoPro, and Gilbert is yelling through the window, "Just drive right there, block the wind." <laughs> <laughs> and he says, "I he says I'm not getting any draft off this motorbike. Just drive right there." And they're like, "We can't." He's like, "Stay right there," um, but it's. It's pretty incredible. I digress. I no, want to the, come back. Sorry, go ahead, Spencer. Oh, no, no. What, were, what do you want to come back to? Uh, I mean, I think a really critical thing to cover here, we talked about it a little bit, but I felt like Vanderpool was going to get a flat the way he was all over the road, right? He was, he was like rail to rail. It was insane. Yeah, I mean, I guess he felt 
confident. You could imagine him getting a flat though. I, that was, yeah. I clipped it out of, maybe I'll put it back. Sometimes I can't include as many gifts as I want in the newsletter because they won't go through as an email. Maybe I'll put it back in now the static page, but there's a clip where he, as you're saying, he's going rail to rail like through turns on the cobblestones. I, I guess it worked out. I guess he was confident in Alpeson's ability to give him a rig that was not going to pinch flat, even as he's carving up cobblestone roads. Is it the case that the race organizer just doesn't have enough budget to put up more of the plastic blockade things we saw <laughs> towards the end of the race? <laughs> well, can we start a, can we do a GoFundMe and buy them more? They only do it for that section because there's the bike path. It's like a, a kind of a ceremonial cobblestone road and there's a smooth bike pack, bike path on the side and they don't want you to ride on the bike path. So they put those up just in that sector. I mean, right. they could, it would be, <laughs> that would be a little mean if they put them up all over the course and then you have guys, cause guys would try to go on the, on the grass and then get absolutely pegged by those that forget they were there. Yeah. What do we I need to ask you about bottle stealing? What's your, I, okay. there was a lot of bottle stealing going on on Sunday. Okay. Like a, like Wout many times had his bottle stolen by Stefan Kuhn, who would just ride in front of him and then take the bottle from the Yumbo helper on the side of the road and then wow that might have contributed to him not getting the right. exact bottles that he wanted because maybe stefan kung had the bottles that he wanted i mean i i have teammates kevin sulker he's a, he's a listener to this podcast former teammates who have the mentality of if a bottle is out there you take it you don't ask questions you don't apologize <laughs> i always felt a little uncomfortable with it i mean where do you stand on that yeah I guess that this is similar to the strategy of the winner is always the right strategy. I guess if you need a bottle and you're able to get one, however you secure it, then you have done yourself a service and you've done a disservice to your competitor. I have to think that this is the kind of thing where over time it's going to come around and bite you in the ass. And well, yeah, right? it's, you know, <laughs> it's also funny to think of like Yumbo having all these scientific calculations for like what bottles to give when. And then it's like, oh, Stefan Kung actually has all of our bottles. Right. <laughs> we didn't account for this. But you also like don't know what's in that bottle. Like what if it's ketones? As Marco said, that might not actually be good all the time. Right. So it's yeah. kind of a risky thing. I'm sure when you're it's not hot at Roubaix, but it can feel hot if it's 66 and you're coming out of winter and you're going all out for six hours. So. If you're desperate enough, you will take anything. We need to talk to the next time we have someone from the world tour back on here, we need to talk to them about the, the ethics of bottle stealing. So if someone, if someone has stolen your bottle, so if Stefan Kung has stolen your bottle and you're wow, can you remove that bottle from his bike? Ooh. Could you just, right? <laughs> Probably not. You might cause a big crash, but yeah, ethically. I don't, maybe. I don't know. Can you, has it ever happened? I'm pretty sure you cannot. I'm pretty sure feeds, at least according to the rule. That's a good question. Actually. Yeah. Are feeds from the side of the road, like technically open bars? Like it's just a respectful thing that you don't take food from another team, but yeah. Well, could you just ride through a feed zone and just grab whatever bag you wanted? It's a good, that's actually an interesting question. Yeah. I mean, this isn't burning man. This is not a gifting economy. I don't think. And I don't know if someone, someone takes your bottle, surely you could just take it back. Interesting. Yeah. It's like, it's a binding, it's like a, or is it a bearer bond? Whoever then holds it gets the value of that thing. Um, one, 
thing I wanted to get to after, so after, so we were all, we're all sad. Like obviously it would have been fun to see Vanderpool sprint against Van Art. If that is, is so silly to even speculate on, but let's say they go into the velodrome together. Who do you think would have won? I think wow would have won. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I like to think that he's also, but he's addicted to losing to Vanderpool in these big, I, I know, sprints. but I, I think the irony here is I think what we're going to see in the trajectory of this relationship over time and granted, it's just so difficult to know when injury crashes the ground or going to intercede and change the course of cycling history. I think that over time, we're going to see Wout be the bigger winner. I know this is just going to sound reckless and wild given Matthew's record to date and monuments, but Wout has learned he is the more strategic rider. He is a different rider than we saw at the tour last summer. I feel like he's evolved. We saw it in this race. He was conserving his energy. He let Matthew do all of the work. He would have been fresher had he arrived in the velodrome, yeah. right? Like race. he yeah. he really rode he really rode a perfect race and I do think that over time it's going to reward him and I think that to his credit, Vanderpool has, I think, the best track record of all time in monuments now. And he he just doesn't ride very smart. I mean, like, I, I know it's, it sounds... For one caveat, he wins. that San Remo is pretty smart. That was, that was a very smart ride because he did what Wout did in Roubaix. I just thought we were seeing, we were seeing classic kind of irrational Vanderpool behavior throughout... That's what I thought. Roubaix. And yeah. I think that this is going to, this is like an addict being enabled. He's addicted <laughs> to behaving in an irrational manner when he races his bike. He has a level of talent that's generational. He's going to continue to behave in this way because he has this belief that it will lead to victory. And he did win. We can't take that away from him. Hats off. And I don't think it's going to work over time. It's same thing with him, uh, his bike handling and yeah, he's the best bike handler in the world. I think we can say that. Sorry, Tom Pidcock. I think I think that Matthew might be better. Um, and it, over time, I'm like, is that going to keep working out for him? Well, yeah, it does seem like Vanderpool and Pogacar crash a freakishly small amount. And is that because just like, will they revert to the mean at some point or are they just immune to crashing? I would probably think they will revert to the mean. And we saw Chief Pogacar have a little bit of a crash bug this last Tour de France when he lost. So it, it's not totally crazy to think that the bill comes due at some point and Vanderpool has three or four unlucky monuments that then Van Aert wins and then we're back on equal footing and then we're and then the later stages of their careers, they're just trying to break each other's monument tallies. Yeah, I have to bounce in one minute to go disrupt an industry. But Spencer, before I go, what this is reminding me of is what we saw in this race was Sagan crashed out, concussion, severe concussion, it looks like, his last Roubaix. And what the, what's that making me think of is that he used to be the Peloton's very best bike handler, and he yeah. used to be the bowling ball that was just knocking people <laughs> on the ground. And we were all like, oh, that's cool. It's Peter Sagan. And then I think we didn't talk about this. I do think the unfortunate trickle down is that, you know, you go out on the bus stop ride in Boulder or the Simi ride in LA, Montrose ride, whatever. And suddenly 
every cat four thinks that you can just like ride someone into a light pole because they they saw uh that might peter have been sagan. happening before peter sagan yeah okay i'm not convinced yeah. that wasn't always yeah. happening yeah completely i'm gonna go through the hole i really need to get this cream and get that uh that clip bar or golden sock or whatever the case may be but i mean i wonder if the teleology of a writer like vanderpool is sagan and sagan has had a storied career over time though it's caught up to him i think yeah no it's a good point it does feel like the bills come due for sagan i he's also just I, it's also one of those writing styles that if you're not 100 percent mentally plugged in it goes so 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 wrong which we've seen sagan since his divorce his off the bike behavior has been a little bit more erratic maybe a little bit less fun than it was before and then on on the road it's just a complete disaster because he's not I would guess he's not totally focused. All right, Andrew had to take off, but upcoming this weekend is the Amstel Gold Race. It is a long 250 kilometer, super hilly, absurdly hilly, almost too hilly one day race in the one hilly region of the Netherlands. It's, you know, I'd say pre 2019 was not my most favorite race. And then we had Vanderpool with the unbelievable come from behind win in 2019. There was no race in 2020 because of COVID. 2021 was the Wout Van Aert Tom Pickock uh, bike throw that no one, people still aren't sure who actually won that race. And then last year, Mikhail Kiyovkoski wins it. Good story against Benoit Kosnafra. I don't know. Was it my favorite? It wasn't one I'll, I'll, I'll be telling the grandkids about. Um, I think it suffers a little bit between you get this post cobbled hangover before uh, Liege, which is the following weekend, which is a monument, tends to have a little bit better start list. But having said all that, we, do, we don't get Vanderpool, we don't get Van Aert. That's very sad, very depressing. We do get Tade Pogacar. Um, I, I'm excited to watch him attack this course. We'll see if he um, has peaked too soon, if he's had a nice rest and is going to be flying for Liège. And we actually just heard that we also get Remco Evenepoel. So we're going to get Tade Pogacar, Remco Evenepoel. Of the Liège-Bastogne-Liège showdown has been moved forward to Amstel Gold. So that's fantastic news. Um, this, this is like the methadone that will get us over. Are, are terrible withdrawals of, of the cobbled classics and writers like Matthew Vanderpool, Wout Van Aert, Tadej Pogacar duking it out. And yeah, in my mind, this is almost like a new birth and new life for these Ardennes races, which I think struggled a little bit to find their form until recent years. But if we're getting major, major GC contenders who are also the favorites at these races duking it out, I mean, this is going to be a, a very, very interesting week. I believe Pogacar plans to do Amstel Gold, Flesh Wallone, and then Liege Bastogne Liege, hoping to do the jo Philippe Jobert sweep of those races. So I'm really excited to see how this plays out. This Evanapol news has me rejuvenated and, and excited to go and ready to watch Amstel Gold this coming weekend.